Yeah, when I first moved out here, um, I transferred to another Denny's because I knew I needed work. And it's the first time I just didn't show up to work. It's just I was just sitting there on the beach and just like I can't do this anymore. And I just didn't show up. And I felt bad about it, but it's like I was I was walking up I was in Pacific Beach, I was walking up Garnett Avenue, which is the main uh, street in Pacific Beach, and I was just thinking, I was like, there's dead animals in there, and there's dead animals in there, and there's dead animals where I work. I was like, I just can't do this anymore, and I just stopped. It was crazy. It was just, I, I just couldn't not think about it anymore. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. You just heard from Roy Elam, head chef of Donna Jean in San Diego. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is the Veg Talk Podcast, the show bringing you weekly conversations from leaders in the plant-based and vegan community around the world. This week, we find ourselves back in the United States after a stint in Mexico, where we were able to record about 12 episodes for the Spanish version of the show, which is quickly growing in countries like Mexico, Colombia, and Uruguay. The response has been amazing so far, and the interaction and interest from people is really encouraging. Plant-based diets and vegan lifestyles are becoming more and more popular around the globe, and Anna and I are excited to be bringing you stories from inspiring people in two languages on a weekly basis. This week, we received a new review from Diego G. from Baja, California. He said that he's planning on making more changes to his diet after listening to the show, and also eating at Chula Vegan Cafe. Really appreciate the review and rating, Diego, and I hope you enjoy making some healthier choices in the coming weeks. If you'd like to leave your own review, it's super easy on the Apple Podcast app. Just find the podcast, scroll down to the stars, leave us as many as you'd like, and then hit the Write a Review button to leave a short comment on what you think of the show. Positive ratings continue to help the show reach more people around the world, It's really exciting to see the places where the English and Spanish show are being listened to, and we thank you for your support. It's really appreciated. Now for this week's episode. We sat down at Donna Jean in San Diego to chat with Roy Elam. He is the head chef and founder of the restaurant, which opened in 2017. After having a career in music and touring with his band, Roy started to dedicate more time to his second love, food. He found himself cooking more at home and for his band. After gaining some experience at Denny's, Roy needed a change of scenery, as you heard in the intro clip. Being vegan meant that he didn't want to work with animal products anymore. This switch saw him do stints at multiple plant-based establishments, as well as working under Matthew Kenny and more so Scott Weingard. This episode, you'll hear from Roy in more depth about his life, how he now runs a successful plant-based restaurant with another one on the way, and what makes Donna Jean such a special place. I hope you enjoy the show today, guys. As always, I'll catch you on the other side to wrap things up. All right, we're here today at Donna Jean in San Diego. It's an absolutely delicious place to come and eat. We're with head chef, owner, uh, Roy Elam. And um, yeah, so grateful for your time today, man. It's, it was kind of at short notice. And yeah, I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, really, really stoked. So I suppose we can get straight into it, man. I'd really like to hear a little bit about, you know, where you grew up in the States. Yeah. Um, and yeah, what, you know, childhood was like yeah. back in the day for, for you. Okay. Um, so I was, I was actually born in Texas, 
Uh, my dad was uh, in the Air Force, so that was his first place that he got stationed. And from there, we moved around, mostly around the Midwest. I lived in Texas, Alabama, Ohio, and then I ended up in Illinois. And then uh, when I got married, my wife and I moved to St. Louis, uh, which is just on the other side of the river. So Midwestern boy, you know, growing up in that whole thing. My, my, my mom was from a farm in Ohio, so I get to go back there. I get kind of see... You know, people still like if they don't grow it they don't eat it basically as far as the vegetables go so they're and they're still doing that now i was just there about a year ago and uh still got a full-on farm and they they give away what they don't uh what they can't eat they trade with other people and all that kind of stuff which is pretty cool um and then uh as far as just growing up just small town life you know it's like a very meat and potatoes kind of thing that's what my mom knew that's what she made for us but as I got older and as I started, I was in a touring band for a really long time. And as I, the more I got out and the more I started to meet people, uh, vegetarianism, veganism started kind of creeping up on me. I actually worked with a guy at a, a Denny's. Like, I worked at Denny's for a really long time. Um, and the first vegan I ever met was a server that was at, at Denny's. He was in the hardcore scene. So we had, like, this mutual thing that we were interested in. And I just started talking to him about it more, and then uh, it just started to make sense. And that's kind of where I started taking the food I eat more seriously and, and trying to learn how to cook and provide for myself that way. And then that led me into moving to California. And other, I mean, I moved out to California for music specifically, but I worked in kitchens as soon as I got here and started learning all that stuff too. That's cool, man. Yeah. It's funny how I think we've, we've chatted with quite a few people now, and we see a... Uh, uh, an intersect between like the hardcore oh, yeah. punk scene and vegans. Yeah, music and music and uh, and food and veganism, just in general, is just so interconnected. It doesn't have to all be hardcore and and metal and all that stuff, but I feel like that's a like vegan straight edge is a huge thing. Vegan straight edge hardcore, like this is a huge movement. Uh, but a lot of those guys go on and to be into like bigger bands and they're like helping move all that stuff. I I think it's just a matter of. Uh, creative people tend to have a little bit more open mind to that kind of stuff and they want to listen and they want to talk about it and they want to try to figure out how to make the world a little bit better than how they found it you know yeah that's no, a nice message yeah it's cool to see um not just in the u.s but we've you know chatted with people in australia and yeah the same thing comes up over and over again yeah. so it's it's um it's a really cool kind of uh you know cross section where, the where they uh, two, two his last name's weinhofen the, oh, he used Jonah. To be in, yeah, Jonah he used Weinhofen. to be in uh, Bring the Media Horizon, and now he lives out here, in, in, yeah. or he lives in L.A. And, uh, yeah, he's a huge advocate for veganism. I think he does uh, modeling for Beat by Beat and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Too. So it's really cool to see him out here doing that stuff, too. Yeah, I'll, I'd love to get him and his wife on the podcast. I yeah. think that'd be a really interesting couple yeah. to I've met him show. for, like, a brief moment. He's a super nice guy. Yeah, yeah, he's actually, I think he's from Adelaide, which is where I was born. Oh, cool. Very yeah. nice. So, yeah, we'll have to get them on. So, music. Mm-hmm. huge part of your life yeah what what was the band what were you guys doing and, and so how long did you tour for when i moved to california i played in a couple of different bands but the one that stuck was as a band called the material so female fronted rock band i always say it was like a mix between circus survive and uh foo fighters basically it's like ambient rock uh, you know we always got compared to paramore and Evanescence, and because nobody knew where to put it, so, you know, if a female singer, so obviously you're Flyleaf or your Evanescence or your uh, Paramore, which I mean, we weren't any of those things; we were our own thing. But um, 
pretty early on, we got a little bit of success um, when MTV was still like doing music stuff. We were on this this show called The Dew Circuit Breakout is sponsored by Mountain Dew, but it was basically a battle of the bands kind of thing. So we went on there. <clears throat> we didn't win, but we got a song placed on rock band when it was like, that was a thing, you know, it was like everybody was playing rock band at their house. So that helped fund a lot of our tours, like any, you know, the money we were making off of that. And it just kind of put us in front of a bunch of people. We never signed to a record label. We stayed independent the whole time. But in the seven or eight years that we were together, we toured for, let's say, like a solid, you know, five, six years of those. Um, started here, ended up in L.A., and that's where the band members live now. We all are in L.A., um, and we haven't, I haven't done anything with them in a while. They actually just put out a record, an EP, last year, but I wasn't involved with it at all because I just was too busy with this. So what happens when you've, you know, your passion at the time is music, you're touring with a band. Uh-huh. You've always been working in kitchens, you know, whether yeah. it be Denny's or, you know, with whatever. Matthew Kenny, whatever, yeah. whatever it might be. When did you have to make, you know, a decision that um, yeah. you, you had to choose food over music? You know, playing in bands, it's it's hard. Um, it's hard to make a living doing it, and uh, I think that's kind of the crossroads that we came out. We 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 were doing well for a while, but then the last tour we did, like we didn't even break even. You know, we our van broke down, our trailer broke down, and just we weren't seeing any form of momentum anymore. So we just decided to take a break, and within that break, we all. Um, started to kind of get a little bit more into our jobs, whatever that was, and I just threw myself into cooking more, which is, I was already really passionate about it. I was already doing it. Um, I had taken on some head chef roles and, and things, even while we were still playing um, off full-time. And uh, once we started taking that break, I just threw myself into it even more because it's still a very creative thing. I, I've, I see working in restaurants just like having another band. It's just we don't get in the van and we don't drive around. You know, it's still a creative unit of people that work together. Instead of writing songs, I'm writing recipes, and we're just working to, with other creative people to make your idea better than it was to begin with. So that's kind of, uh, I think that's why music and food work so well together, because it is a collaborative effort. It is people working together for a common goal, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, no, food is... I think food is an art form, yeah, you know, it really on, is. on its own. It, so. it definitely fulfills a a hole that I would have if I wasn't playing. If if I didn't have this and I wasn't playing music, I would feel very out of sorts. Like I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So before we get into kind of the, you know, the plant-based cooking and and your experience as a chef. Yeah. Do, do you have like a vegan story? Is there is there a, a clear path you remember that led you to choosing veganism? Man, I don't know. I So when my wife and I got together, she was vegetarian. I was kind of dabbling in it. And I don't think there was like this ever like aha moment, but we just started, like I said, I was talking to this guy. He was, his name's Chris, was the, the, um, the server. And we just, you know, just talking about the the how animals are used as food and for me it was more an ethical thing it wasn't really a health thing and uh just the more information i knew the more we would cut out things and we would just kind of all of a sudden we were on our path to veganism and, I, and as i was telling you before when we moved to california i started working for an animal rights group 
I was like the annoying guy you see in front of Whole Foods trying to get you to sign papers, you know? Um, and uh, I just got to know more and see more about factory farming and all that kind of stuff. And it was just kind of a no-brainer at that point. So it, was a, it, it wasn't this one-day cold turkey, like, I'm going to do it. It was just this, I'd say over the course of like six months to a year is when I finally did it. And then when I moved here, I, I was working for that. They were called the Animal Protection and Rescue League. And then I met one of my who's one of my partners now mitch who owns this building that we're in right now i actually worked in this building in 2005 2007 something like that in a restaurant that was called kung food it was the first vegan restaurant i ever worked in and it was this this restaurant that we're sitting in right now plus evolution which is next door was all one restaurant and uh and i worked here which is how it kind of led me into owning this restaurant here you know some 10 years later or whatever so that kind of that restaurant particularly kung food kind of i thought i knew how to cook and then i started working there i was like i don't know anything so i just started learning and learning and learning because you know at denny's you don't really learn how to cook you learn how to be fast and efficient mm -hmm. which is a really good tool to have when you're working in restaurants but you don't really learn how to cook other than eggs you know there's a skill in art form in cooking eggs that i don't think a lot of people possess that and once you do like a hundred omelets in an hour you know you get pretty good at it <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of omelets yeah in it's, an hour, it's like over easy over yeah. hard like all that stuff it's yeah. it's definitely a thing that you you got to be good at you know yeah so i i probably couldn't cook an egg now it's been a long time but uh <laughs> but it, it was it was it was a skill that i definitely learned it was yeah it was yeah, but but coming here and, and, and working in a vegan restaurant, it kind of changed my mindset into, okay, this is how you cook real food. It's not like, how do you push out a bunch of volume? It's like, oh, this is like, I'm actually cutting the onions and the carrots and the celery and making, you know, a mirepoix and like turning it into soup and all that stuff. It was like, I never, it was like, open up a bag and go for it, you know? Mm -hmm. Going vegan and working with food, uh -huh. was there ever, a, you know, was there ever a point in your life where you were vegan, still working with animal products? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, how, when how I first that? moved out here, um, I transferred to another Denny's because I, need, I needed work. And it's the first time I just didn't show up to work. It was just I was just sitting there on the beach and just like, I can't do this anymore. And I just didn't show up. And I felt bad about it. But it's like, I was, I was walking up, I was in Pacific Beach, I was walking up Garnett Avenue, which is the main... Uh, street in pacific beach and i was just thinking i was like there's dead animals in there and there's dead animals in there and there's dead animals where i work i was like i just can't do this anymore and i just stopped it was crazy it was just i, I just couldn't not think about it anymore right i suppose at yeah. denny's it's like it's, oh, it's, it's like in your face bacon with, yeah. and you know shitty steaks and I don't know, it was just terrible so i just i just couldn't do it anymore yeah i've had one denny denny's meal in my life i think it was in like vancouver canada uh -huh. with my uncle yeah. Yeah. I probably, <laughs> I probably, I can't remember the meal. It wasn't very, uh, yeah. you know, inspiring. No, it's, um, and, and I mean, it's, it's there for a purpose. You yeah. know, it's like, it's cheap food that's exactly. accessible to a lot of people. And I mean, for that, I guess it's fine. But, but for, for, for me, I just, I couldn't unsee what I knew at that point. So I just stopped doing it. And then I think the next week I got the job here and, and just kind of kept moving on. So that was going to be my, yeah, my next question is like, you know, when you, when you decide to leave a job uh, because of ethical reasons, uh -huh. I mean, what year was this? Like, what kind of time frame are we talking? And yeah. how many how many options did you have to to look into it at the time? Not much. I mean, I think it was. I think I came out here in two thousand five, if I'm correct, and 
there was Kung Food, which was here, and there was this grocery store in Ocean Beach called People's, which is a vegetarian grocery store, but they also um, have a deli upstairs. But as far as other vegan places, there wasn't really much. Um, it was still fairly new, and it was like still like the very granola hippie, you know, stuff where it, like vegan food felt weird, and uh, and it, that's not the case anymore. Um, but yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of options. Even moving out here to the West Coast in St. Louis, none. There was like one guy that was doing like a Jamaican, I, weirdly enough, raw food place that was next to the hospital that my wife worked in, and they didn't do very well. But that was it. You know, you go to a restaurant and ask for a vegan option, and there wasn't much. It was, there was a place in St. Louis called Blueberry Hill, which is, I think, where, like, uh, Chuck Berry kind of owned that place. But they were, like, one of the only places that had, like, red beans and rice or a veggie burger that was vegan, and that was where my wife and I would eat, and that was about it. Yeah. I can imagine. I yeah, mean, not we, much. <laughs> we, ha- we haven't passed through there on our travels, but I can imagine. It's better it's, now. Yeah. Like, there, there are actually vegan restaurants in St. Louis now. Um, that my, my brother is, is now vegan and, uh, he, he'll take me to places. But even if I go to the small towns that we used to live in, if I, if I even mention veganism, they know what it is. And there's so many places that have the impossible burger now. It's right. crazy. It's like, Hey, at least get one of those. No matter how you feel about the impossible burger, the beyond burger, like it's an option. It's there. My, my wife and I were driving back from St. Louis last year. <clears throat> we stopped in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, and we were able to get a burger at Carl's Jr. And it's like, it's cool. You know, it's like, I, otherwise we would have just had, a, you know, some mixed nuts or something like that. But we had like a, a full burger meal kind of thing that we wouldn't have had before. And I had told one of my uh, friends about it and they're like, yeah, that's exactly what it's there for. I'm like, it worked for me in a pinch for sure. So what do you think about that? The expansion of like the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger getting into, you know, Oh, I think it's chains. great. I yeah. mean, I'll, it's not something I'll use in my restaurant because we're trying to do something different, but... The way I look at it is the, the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger, it's not for me. Like, that, I'm not the target audience. I've already been vegan for a long time. I've, like, moved past all of that stuff. I'll still eat one every now and then, but um, it's for the people that are either transitioning or they just want something that is, you know, perceived as healthier. Um, I, I think it's great. I mean, the more animals you can take off the plate, the better for me. I think it's cool that White Castle has an impossible slider. Like, that's insane to me. And it, we're in a place of right now where the vegan veganism was shunned by the fast food industry forever, and now they have to do something or else they're going to lose sales. Like, that's the only way you're going to hit these big companies is that they hit them in the pocketbook and now that they're seeing that the impossible burger sells out or the beyond burger sells out and even kfc is getting into it like it's 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 insane so no matter how you feel about it it's still a good thing you're giving options whether you or i go to eat at those places it's still there and it's clearly selling or they wouldn't do it yeah i mean it is kind of insane isn't it we're talking about like the giants of like yeah killing animals yeah at the end of the day whereas like tyson's getting into the game yeah which is crazy like i lived in arkansas for a little while where tyson is and it's just like these huge factories of just you know killing animals yeah but now they weren't aren't they like a big investor in beyond meat or something so. like that or impossible it's just it's insane they, but again it's it's just because they see the profitability behind it but either way it's still helpful to the overall cause of everything you know exactly i think the 
you've hit it on the head there. Like yeah. the overall. Yeah. And you can complain about GMOs and whatever people have complaints about the Impossible Burger. They're valid complaints, but still, it's an option that takes actual meat off the plate. So definitely, yeah, definitely. So moving on from, I suppose, kung food. Yeah. Um, how does your career as a plant-based chef kind of evolve from there? So I I, I worked here for about two years, I think. And then uh, my wife got an opportunity to work in uh, Salem, Oregon, which is just south of uh, Portland. So we moved up there, and at that point, we were touring pretty full-time. So I didn't work anywhere in Oregon, but I kept on cooking, and I kept on cooking at home. And, you know, I would cook for the band because we actually all uh, – we wrote a record in Oregon. So we, we rented a uh, rehearsal space in Portland. So we would go up there, then we'd come back to the house at night, and I would just make food for everybody. And then uh, I would cook for us while we were on the road. And then, then we all kind of migrated to L.A. And then I got a job <clears throat> at a restaurant called Sun Cafe, which I was I eventually made my way into head chef there. Stayed there, I want to say, like four years or something. Uh, then I, I quit for a minute, worked for Matthew Kenny. Then I went back and stayed for like another two years. And then I quit, and then I went back to work for Matthew Kenny at Plant Food and Wine, which they had just opened in Venice. And then I was there for about a year and a half, and uh, I took an opportunity. They were opening a restaurant in the Middle East, so I was like, okay, I'll go help, right? So I went out and helped to do that, and when I came back, I had already been talking to Mitch about opening this place. They didn't really have any more work for me, or they, they wanted me to be a consultant, or they had offered me a consultancy. I was like, well, I already have this restaurant that I've been working on, so then I moved down here. And it, that's, in a nutshell, kind of what happened, you know? Yeah. So I suppose the Matthew Kenny experience is kind of cool. This guy, for those of you uh, that don't know who Matthew Kenny is, he kind of, like he has, I think you said earlier, over 40 restaurants. I think so at this point. It's like, it's international. He's got Australia, you know, yep. Canada, the U.S. Um, all He's everywhere now. Um, so working for him was great. Uh, Scott Weingard was the the executive chef of the company so I worked with him mostly and uh and Scott did a inter internship at Noma so he got he brought all of that knowledge so it took kind of what I knew as a chef or I would just say as a cook at that point I wasn't really a chef I was like a guy that knew how to cook food right and it took the knowledge that I had and I learned how to treat ingredients properly I learned how to make something out of nothing which is something that you don't really uh you don't really think about that it's like when when you're writing a song um you don't have anything right you you just have an idea in your head and then you just kind of turn it into something and i feel like that's how recipes are too but it was it's just kind of taught me how to make the food look good on the plate and not only look good but taste good and kind of going into this instagram heavy world how it looks is just as important as how it tastes you know, people eat with their eyes. And I feel like a lot of people know how to plate really nicely. But when you go to actually eat it, you're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> so it's like kind of learning how to back it up on both sides of the thing. It's like making it taste good, but also making it look good at the same time. That's really true. I yeah. haven't really thought about that kind of dynamic between yeah. seeing the food yeah. and then going and thinking, oh, that's not exactly this, what this I thought it would Instagram taste like. Instagram versus reality thing yeah. now. It's, like, it's between people and food at this point. Yeah, it's, it's all the same thing. Yeah, you can you can make anything look pretty, but it's like, can you make it be good when you actually get to it? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, after the experience, you know, working at 
at Sun Cafe, uh-huh. uh, and also with Matthew Kent or Scott Weingard, yeah. um, more predominantly. But yeah, after building skills, yeah, you know, cooking with plants, was there a time where you were like, okay, now is the time, or was there a push to to start your own place? The 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 push to start my own place honestly came because it was offered to me. I wasn't looking for it, but uh, Mitch had brought it up and I came down here. I looked at the space. We talked about it. We did a couple tastings and then all of a sudden we were funded. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm opening a restaurant. It wasn't something I was really planning, but in the trajectory of my career, it was kind of the next move, whether I was planning for it or not. there, there wasn't really any other places I could work. I could be a personal chef, but I did that a little bit. I didn't really like it. You know, it's, it's not the same as feeding a bunch of people. Feeding one person that's got the money to hire me isn't the same as, you know, having 100 people come in at night. So that was, that was uh, kind of what fueled me to be like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Why not? And San Diego just happened to be what was afforded to me. So I was like, all right, I'll come down and do it. I knew the town, or at least from when I lived here before. And uh, it was good that I was able to open here first because it gave me the room to experiment and figure out what this restaurant really is. Um, so whereas like if I opened up in LA right away, I mean, we would have been eaten alive. You know, there wouldn't have been a lot of room to stumble. Whereas we've had kind of that, that freedom here, which has been really nice. That's, that's definitely helpful. Like yeah. there are cities in, around the world that are very unforgiving yeah. when it comes to to yeah. restaurants. Uh, yeah, and, and so for San Diego to be kind of a smaller community, they really wanted something like this to work. So when we came down here, like I just had to be open and listen. And I could have been stubborn, and we could have been closed by now. But in that first year, we really, I really listened, and I really just tried to figure out what does this community want, and how do I do it, but not compromise the things that I want to do, and. Uh, and we ended up at pizza and pasta, which I'm 100% okay with. If we haven't compromised anything, we still make everything in-house. We don't buy, you know, I love BioLife, but I don't buy any of it here. We make all of our cheeses, we make all of our pastas, we make all of our, you know, we make our pizza dough every day, we, we make our own hot sauce, we ferment things for two months, you know, it's like, these are some of the things that I learned by working with Scott that before that I wouldn't have ever really thought like, oh, I can do all this stuff. and. Uh, and beyond even just working with Scott, uh, veganism is not really kind to Anthony Bourdain, but like his shows and his just general pe- passion behind food taught me all the things that I wouldn't do, do because I didn't go work at Noma. I couldn't go work at French Laundry. Like I was already vegan. I, like, that opened up a world to me that I just wasn't going to do. So I got to learn from Sean Brock by not working with him. I got to learn from Edward Lee by not working with him and just seeing all those things. So people want to talk bad about Anthony Bourdain, but I love him. I, there's yep. a picture of him in the back of the kitchen with him giving the middle finger to the kitchen because like, he's the person that I would want to, like if he could come in and hear it eat and say like, this was a good meal, it's like, okay, I did my job. Like I'm not, I'm not cooking for, it's like I'm not preaching to the choir, I want to, cook food that everybody's going to enjoy. And like, that's my baseline right there. You know, let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, Anthony Bourdain uh-huh. and the vegan community, not exactly synonymous with no, each other. No, not at all. So I don't think as vegans, we always need to be inspired by other vegans. No. So how did he 
how did he grab your attention and how did he inspire you to do the work you're doing now? There's two things. Like his voice is very comforting. So I can listen to him talk all day. Like his shows were very eye-opening. Um, like my wife can't watch the shows because there is a lot of like killing animals and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like, yes, that's very disheartening. I hate seeing that stuff. But like I said, it really opened me up to like, okay, this is how other people do it. So how can I take that and apply it to what I do? And uh, in the rest of the world, you know, food is everything. And, uh, and, and in America, it's become like this commodity ingredient, like food, like a, a, you go to a, a grocery store and you have bell peppers wrapped in cellophane. You know, it just looks like a, a product. It's, you know, this is why we have things growing on our patios. Like I want people to see, like this is where food comes from that actually grows and people have to pull it out of the ground and we, then we use it. So it's that, that opened me up to chefs that are doing that. And they're, they're really in, involved in the ingredients, where they come from, working with very specific farmers to get exactly what they want. Uh, and otherwise, if I would have just followed the path of other vegan chefs, like, I, would just, I would be making everything vegan just because I could. It's like I would have curry and all this other stuff on the menu as opposed to really refining it to, like, at this point, we're pretty much a vegan Italian restaurant, which I'm okay with. Italian food's very simple, and that's the kind of, like I wanna make simple food that has the least amount of ingredients, but it's still really delicious. So if I'm gonna go out of the way to buy the best tomatoes, I want you to taste those best tomatoes, you know? That's, that, that whole community of, of those chefs and the, the things that Anthony Bourdain brought to light for me and everybody else has is, is really helped me as, as what I do, you know, as a chef. Really and it's cool. not just me. I think there, when he died and committed suicide, unfortunately, there was a lot of people that were trash talking him, but there was a lot of people like myself and Scott and a bunch of other chefs that were like, no, no, no. If he didn't exist, we wouldn't exist. And I think it's really important that people know that. You can take things that are inherently look bad and turn it into something that's good. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he kind of brought about a whole new breed of chefs yeah really in, did in, into the industry well, and, and you know and it's like they were already there but he highlighted them yeah and i think that's was incredibly important no i agree i i, re, I remember when he passed away and mm. um yeah you definitely saw both sides of the, the coin on yeah. social media i i felt like i lost a friend that day which is crazy i never met him i don't know anything about him personally other than what he's you know put forward but he was a genuinely honest person and he like he honestly didn't like vegans but i was okay with that it didn't matter to me because like he was my like i said he was my goal like how do i how do i make this guy walk in here and be like okay this was good it's a really cool relationship yeah without knowing someone yeah i suppose i want to get into to donna jean for a mm-hmm. second so i i want to dig a little bit more into to the name yeah. how, how you came up with the name and, and what the meaning is behind uh, the name of the restaurant. I suppose we can start with that and then we can yeah. learn a little bit more. So we had a couple of different ideas for the name of this, but I brought up Donna Jean because that's the name of my mom who uh, she passed away at 55 from breast cancer. So yeah, we ended up naming the restaurant after her and it kind of became an homage to her because uh, towards the end of her, she, she had breast cancer twice. So she thought we got rid of it. And this is like a very common story, right? People think they get rid of it and then it comes back and the second time it's very aggressive. So the second time she got it, she's like, I don't want to go through chemo again. It was just too hard. And we're like, okay, that's fine. You know, but so, but then the doctors basically, 
gave her a list of foods to eat and it was primarily a plant-based diet. I'm like, so why are we doing this now as opposed to trying to teach people through the entirety of their life that you know, eating vegetables is a good thing for you? Um, instead, you know, we're tied into the meat and dairy industry and like that whole thing, you know? So that, it was that idea of just like, okay, I'm gonna start a restaurant that is 100% plants and that's all we're gonna do. And, uh, but at the same time, not be a preachy vegan restaurant because I don't think that's right either. I just wanna, it's like the whole idea of leading by example. You come in here, you get good food, you walk out, you're like, I don't know what I just had, but I really liked it. We're not, you know, we, we just are very much into just being a neighborhood restaurant that happens to not serve any animals. And that's the position that we take. And it's, you, people feel comfortable when they come in here. They don't feel like they walked into a vegan restaurant. Uh, we have to have that discussion sometimes because there are allergens, like nuts and seeds and things like that are definitely allergens. But for the most part, people have been pretty good about it. They, they've, they've opened up to what we want to do and, and, uh, and it's, it's been great to watch. Like when, when there's a, a, a heavy vegan event that's happening in San Diego, it doesn't hurt our sales anymore because we've reached out beyond that community, which is great. That's really cool. Do you find that uh, the, you know, the community you've created here, there's mm -hmm. a percentage that are vegan or not vegan? Do you, do you know? Uh, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of our clientele, a, a very large portion of it are not vegan, which is exactly what I wanted. I wanted to provide a space for both, you know, and it's it's been really cool to see that actually happen. That's sweet. What what do you, what was kind of your vision um, at the beginning for how did you want to present? I know you you referred to it before as kind of leading by example. Yeah. Did you want to present an opportunity to that community that are not vegan and say, hey, we, we can offer you yeah delicious food that doesn't have animals? Yeah, for me, it, it was really about. Uh, at the core level, just making everything from scratch and not compromising on that. Like that, whatever style of food we did, that was my baseline. It's like, we're not gonna buy any prefabricated products and we're gonna make it all of our, all ourselves. And uh, you know, we started as kind of a different restaurant. It was more like this Southern themed kind of thing. And it wasn't really resonating with people. And then one day my partners were like, you should make pizza. I was like, all right, I've never done that before. So give me two months and we'll figure it out. And uh, I think July of 2017, we threw pizzas on the menu. And uh, it's been this ever-evolving process since then. But uh, it's been the thing that has been kind of like the anchor of our menu. People come in for that. Because we're the only fully vegan restaurant in San Diego that does pizza. Like, there's a lot of vegan pizzas in San Diego, but we're the only fully vegan restaurant that does it. And we do it our way. Like the whole idea behind this restaurant it, for me is that when you walk in here, you're getting an experience that you don't get anywhere else. It's like, sure, you can get pizza somewhere else, but you can't get our pizza somewhere else. And I, I think that we've kind of built our own ecosystem here, which is very specific to what we do. So when someone throws something like that at you, you know, mm -hmm. I think you should make pizza mm -hmm. and you haven't done it before, you have to make it fully plant-based. Yeah. What's the experimentation process like in terms of like making a dough? Yeah. What products well, to use, that kind at, of thing? At the end of the, like pizza dough itself, at the simplest state, it's flour, water, salt, yeast. That's it. And uh, you can add other things to it. But the hardest part for me at the beginning was figuring out the science behind it. And I'm still playing with that because it's, it's really reliant on temperature and humidity and all this stuff. But I've, I've got it fairly dialed in to where the variables are a little less 
daunting. Um, we're just getting ready to go into summertime, so I might have to make a few adjustments. But, uh, but that learning that process has taken me almost two years at this point to really get to a point where I'm happy with it. You know, I do a mix of three flowers, all organic. Uh, it's I use uh, high gluten flour, which is basically bread flour, double uh, zero, which is your traditional Italian flour. But I say that, but everything we get is is from this uh, Miller Farmer Miller in uh, Utah, so it's all grown here in the states. And then we uh, we add spelt, which I love. It gives like this extra whole grainness to it. I like it. It softens up the dough. It makes it really nice. So that's what we use. And then we use a very small amount of yeast, so we can ferment it for longer it develops more flavor develops more structure more strength and then uh yeah then it, we stretch it we build it and put it out here um the cheeses have been the kind of an ongoing process my sous chef tony i really i tasked him with that i said i need cheese and he's like all right i'll do it and uh we just recently changed our mozzarella a little bit to where we it, it, it melts better now it looks you know, it looks more convincing once it gets on the pizza. Uh, we've been working on a, a, a house-made hard Parmesan that's been, I wouldn't say we've been working on it for like eight months now. Um, I bought the BioLife Parmesan I, and I brought mm. it to Tony. I'm like, make this. And and we've he's just been working on it. He's actually working on a test right now too. And it's really cool. There's actually a picture on the wall over there of uh, me shredding one of our, our tests onto some of our pasta. And uh, that's what I, I want. I want shaved parmesan table side and we're gonna get there uh and we i won't put it on the menu until it's ready but it's just been this back and forth of him me and him talking and he's really into the science of that kind of stuff and um it's been a really good project to hand off to him because he takes it really seriously and so right now we do we do let's see we the mozzarella gouda the parmesan uh ricotta so we can like four to five cheeses in house at any given time um and yeah, it's all just made from scratch. And it's we do it a little differently than other other people do it. I've, you know, working for Matthew, we made cheeses there, but it was, it was different. It's more like a spreadable paste, whereas we're making meltable, sliceable cheese here, which is pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. It's it's kind of like a whole new, you know, set of, I suppose, rules we're creating, like yeah. a whole new world of yeah. of food. Yeah. It allows yeah. you to be creative, yeah. get back in the kitchen, use and, it and as a test lab. For me, it, it's allowed me to to use my team in a way that makes them a part of the overall process. You know, it's like I could have bought BioLife cheese in here and it's just been like, oh, yeah, you just use this on the pizza or whatever. But instead, it's like, again, building this ecosystem where it's like, okay, you, you went through all this, all this effort to make the thing there's more respect that goes into it afterwards. Like everybody treats everything a lot more respectful. Like another good example is like, I don't know, do you guys know what umeboshi is? No. It's a, it's a, you basically you take these unripened plums and you salt them and you ferment them and you turn them into this. It's a Japanese thing, right? But we make it with green strawberries here because that's what's available to us. And it's, we'll let it go for like two months and then we blend it and we use it and it, we turn it into the sauce that we put on our, on our, um, our shishito peppers during the summer, but it's a, you know, people get to see from the very beginning of it. It's just green strawberries and salt, and then you guys see the whole process happen, and it's just kind of teaching our our kitchen crew too that it's like, yeah, you can buy things, but we're gonna make it instead, and they'll get to see you know the, the hot sauce being made. That we make our own preserved lemons here, and it's all 
you have to think ahead. It's not, it's not like, oh, we're out of hot sauce. It's like, no, like it takes two months to make the hot sauce. So you got to tell us way beforehand. So we've always got, you know, like 60 pounds of peppers working at any given point in time, waiting for them to be ready. Because if we don't let it go two months, it doesn't taste the same. It's like, sure, three days you're going to ferment them, but it's not going to be the same as if you let it go for two months. So is this incorporating the team in a way where they're experimenting mm. and you know they're working away on little side projects? Is this something you've learned from Noma as an example? Is this kind of bringing in that mentality to the kitchen? Yeah, I would say, yeah, I, I would say that. You know, working with Scott was a big thing too. Like he would have ideas and he, but he would give the chefs freedom to do things. You know, pickling and fermenting and you know all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's it's really just knowing that no one person has all the answers. You know, I could be I could be a dictator and be like, no, we're doing this. For me, it's more about setting guidelines, setting a, a rule of like what we do, and then letting people work within those parameters. Um, I think uh, Magnus from uh, Favakin, there's a quote, and I'm probably gonna butcher it, but it's just like, you know, the, the gist of it, if you have everything all the time, it doesn't push you to be better than if you have limitations. So for him, he's in the middle of nowhere, Sweden, and he only uses those ingredients. And uh, for us in California, it's so easy to be like, no, I have everything. It's like, no, let's let's break it down and be like, okay, let's work within the seasons. And also we're gonna be an Italian restaurant and we're not gonna go too far beyond those things. When I tell people to create, it's like, think about, we're a vegetarian restaurant that has no access to meat. So we're not gonna do seitan, we're not gonna do, you know, Beyond Meat, we're not going to do Impossible Burgers. We're just going to make vegetables, and that's what we're going to do. So really that's cool. been a good parameters for everybody to think of when we're creating stuff. That's Yeah, that is a really cool mindset, I think. I, I really like it. I, the guy that you brought up, Magnus, Yeah, it's just triggered a memory for me. I think he got featured on like a chef's table thing. Yeah, yeah he's, he's great. He's just out in Another the middle of nowhere. Another person that I've learned from that I wouldn't have known about if Anthony Bourdain didn't exist. You know, it's like all these guys that are on this Michelin star level, I, I got to learn from these people. And, and you know, we'll, I don't know that we'll ever be considered by, you know, the Michelin guide or anything, but it doesn't mean that I can't apply those, that, that mindset to what we do here. You know, we'll never be, you know, $100 a plate, and I don't want to be. Like, that's not the clientele that I'm trying to get. I want as many people to come in here as possible, but we can still take care of people from the minute they walk in the door to the minute they leave and feel like they got a good experience out of it without having three Michelin stars. Like, I don't really care. But it, it makes you think in a way that you maybe wouldn't, wouldn't have thought about beforehand. Totally, definitely. So a couple of the uh, kind of things you're talking about, it, it seems like it's linked back to sustainability. Yeah. So how important is sustainability in terms of food, food waste, mm -hmm. food miles, yeah. any of those things. How important is that to you in the restaurant? Uh, I mean, it's very important. I mean, just on a monetary level, you don't want to waste anything, right? So we've found creative ways of using all of everything. So like the biggest example is uh, when, you get the, when you get your cauliflower in, right? It has all these leaves on it. And most people, they just cut the core out, cut the leaves off and throw it away. It's like, okay, well, how can we use this? So we've started taking the cauliflower leaves and breaking them down and that we turn it into our bolognese. So instead of having like fake meat in there or doing mushrooms, we have a cruciferous bolognese. So it's any trim that we get from the cauliflower or we have broccoli on the menu. So we'll break down the cores, we'll break down the leaves and we just cook it slowly like you would do a meat bolognese. Um, 
another good example is with our hot sauce. Once you blend it and you strain it, you have all these seeds. Uh, Tony one day was like, how about we dehydrate them? I'm like, all right. And now instead of buying cayenne, we have fermented Fresno power and powder. And we use that to, to add heat and fermentation to things that it's just like another level of flavor that you wouldn't get if you would just throw all that stuff away. Um, I also wanted to use black limes, which I can't find here in the States. They're only in the Middle East. So we just started making them uh, by blanching off limes and then throwing them in the dehydrator for a month and then you just turn them into powder. Uh, and there's other little things like that. We're just always trying to figure out how to use everything and not throw anything away. Really cool. What is a cruciferous bolognese like? I don't know. It tastes like bolognese. It's delicious. That's amazing, man. <laughs> that's, that's so cool. That's like... It's definitely not something common. No. You know, you normally hear of like lentil bolognese or, yeah. as you said, like a, a meat substitute bolognese, yeah. but and if it, never have I heard If that. I wouldn't have had the idea that I had to just be like, okay, kind of anything goes, but within these parameters, that wouldn't have existed. You know, just all of a sudden, Tony made it for a staff meal one day. I'm like, all right, cool. We're going we're gonna to do that now. This is something we do. <laughs> That's dope. Is that, is there an, is that another opportunity to, to be creative at staff meal time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely. It, it gives people a chance to kind of flex their creative muscles a little bit and, and at the same time feed your family. You know, the, the idea of family meal is it's, it's called that for a reason because as a restaurant, you tend to spend more time with the people that you work with than your own family sometimes. So it's really about nourishing the people around you and having a chance to be creative and just have fun with it, you know. Definitely. And what about food miles? I know we were talking um, before about like quinoa. Yeah. And the fact that it comes from Bolivia. Yeah, I don't, yeah, for me, it's like, I don't need to use that stuff. So we try to stay as local as we can. Um, and if you're thinking about having less of a carbon footprint, you've got to think about where your food comes from too. So why would I truck, you know, quinoa from Bolivia when there are plenty of grains that grow here in California that have the same protein structure? I don't have to follow a trend just because people want quinoa on the menu doesn't mean I need to put it on there. So I just don't. It's the same thing we were talking about avocados. Like I just don't put them on the menu. I love them. But from a business standpoint, they're incredibly volatile. Like they go bad. They just like, I don't know. I just don't need to use them. And I, so I don't. Um, we've actually been trying to reduce the amount of cashews you, we use. But the Parmesan I was talking about, we're doing a fully rice-based, which rice grows here in California. So. We're trying to continue to reduce some of the things that we we would use that don't come from the states, but that work so well for us. Um, so we're always just trying to kind of experiment and, and try to figure those things out to make it as local as we possibly can. Very cool, yeah. rice-based. And it works really well. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the BioLife cheese, and we tried to reverse engineer it, right? It's potato starch and rice as the two main things. So we've just been playing with different variables on what that is you know we're never going to get modified starches in which is what they use so we're just trying to make it from whole plant-based ingredients that we happen to have on hand so and it's been working pretty well i mean even even the tests we've done the flavor is not there but the the consistency is there which is kind of the hardest part now i think we can just kind of season it or you know tony's been buying in all these cultures and trying to figure out which one works the best. And some of them are way too powerful. They, they probably work well with dairy, but they don't really work well with plant-based stuff. So it's just been a learning process with all that stuff. And 
you know, I just kind of leave it fairly open. He'll be like, I want to do this. I'm like, all right, well, let's try it and see what happens. And it's the same thing that I think about when I'm working on things. I'm just like, I want to do this. How do I get to where I'm going? You so, know? It sounds like a heap of fun. Like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot of work, but at the end result for me is, is worth it. Definitely. Yeah, yeah it, sounds, it sounds really cool. I suppose talking about ingredients, what are some of your favorite ingredients to work with you know whether it be italian based or not what are what are some of the ones you've had the most fun with i've been really obsessing i really obsess over grains and flowers a lot now too whereas i'll i'll i just experiment with different ways of making our bread or our pizza dough like i finally got to where we are right now with our pizza dough but just through like a lot of uh experimentation um I, i love the black limes like i was talking about um i love just working with ingredients in their prime, whatever that is. Like right now, heirloom tomatoes are great. So we're getting those in and I'm trying to be specific about what I get. So it's just, yeah, taking things that are in season and using them when they're the best is what I obsess over. (laughs) How important is in-season food for taste? Uh, Incredibly important. You know, if you take a tomato in December and take a tomato now, they're going to taste... Like, the taste and the texture are going to be completely different. Like, it's super mealy. It's like, yeah, I can get a tomato in December, and most people may not notice, but right now they're just so juicy and sweet, and, like, it tastes like summer, whereas it doesn't taste the same in the middle of winter because it's not supposed to. Are are there ways for, like, the regular consumer, easy ways to learn more about what's in season? So that when they go to the... There's a wealth of information online. It's it's crazy how much how much information is out there you just have to look for it uh especially produce is a, a company here in in L- or in san diego i don't i don't use them for uh my produce purveyor but they have an app just a specialty produce app that just goes through everything that's in season what's in season now and i mean it's, it's free and it actually i think it has recipes on there too that you could use um but especially produce is great too because i can go there even though i don't use them as my purveyor um it's open to the public. You can just go buy things and they have a farmer's market cooler so I can walk in there and kind of see things and kind of pick and choose from stuff that, um, that, that is available from the farmers in the, in the region. So that's been pretty cool too. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think California is a, a pretty cool state to live in. I think, (laughs) I think I heard it's like, like the most diverse plants are grown here in California out of the whole, out of the whole country. And there was some really crazy stat about like maybe only like eight or ten predominant plants in the U.S. being grown in like at scale. Yeah. So that was kind of well, crazy. Well, where, where I'm from is like definitely monocultures. It's soybeans and corn everywhere. That's that's what's being grown in Illinois, and uh, out here it's just it's so much different. There's so many different things that can be grown just because of the climate. I, I've got a banana tree in my backyard. It's crazy, right? Like it's because we're we're a desert climate, but we also have like these weird uh, tropical things too. So it's 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 really interesting to kind of see. I have figs and and bananas and uh, guavas in my backyard in Sherman Oak. It's kind of crazy. So <laughs> sick. Yeah. yeah, I really want to grow food. Like we're obviously in a van at the moment, yeah. so it's kind of hard to do that. But um, yeah, in the future, having 
having something to grow in the backyard. I yeah. think it's really cool to go out and pick it yourself and, and use it in the yeah. kitchen. I've, I've been in my house since February and I just been waiting for these bananas. <laughs> I just like, I really want them to be right. Because I mean, that's another thing that we don't use at the restaurant. We don't use bananas because they don't grow here. I mean, and they do, but it's a much smaller quantity. So like if I could find some and like maybe we'd make a dessert out of it or something, but they're different. Like the, the, the ones that grow here, they're kind of a mix between a plantain and a banana. So they're a little bit more mealy, mm-hmm. a little bit more, uh, like you could cook them, but they don't come as like sweet as what you would think of as, but like what you think of as a traditional banana is so far away from where it originally started. It's if you like go back and kind of like just go down the rabbit hole on Google for a long time and see what a plant started as, like watermelons are a good example. Like they weren't this red fleshy thing that you think of now. Like there was barely any red and barely anything in it. And it's just been, it's just been science to what it is now, which is crazy. Honestly, the, the level of knowledge we have around food in general is just so low. Yeah. Like, I, the first time I saw a cashew and how it was grown... Yeah, it's insane, ...blew right? my mind. Yeah. I was like, no, that can't be. Like, Well, if you look at the price of nuts, it's, it's all about how hard it is to harvest on how the price goes up, you know? Like, walnuts are more expensive because they're a pain to work with. I, there, we had a walnut tree around us in, uh, in Oregon. My wife brought a bunch home and it's like, I don't know how to <laughs> do any things with these. Macadamias are so, are, are so hard to, to harvest as well. That's why they're so expensive. It's just, it, it's, you know, cashews, each little flower or like one thing is one nut, which is why those tend to be a little bit more expensive if you get them in the whole variety, you know? It's interesting. It's, it, is, it is interesting. And, and the bananas, right? Yeah. Bananas used to have seeds. Yeah. Yeah, we've just grown them all out. It's like seedless watermelons. Like, well, how are you growing more watermelons? What's <laughs> going on with the seeds? How are we growing more bananas? Like, <laughs> at least when I was younger, most of the watermelons were, were seeded. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a seeded banana. How are we growing bananas? <laughs> I don't know. Somebody has been seed saving somewhere along the line, yeah. I guess. Yeah. No, it's wild. Yeah. Also, coming from, coming from the Midwest, yeah. you know, comf- that comfort food, yeah. huge yeah. In, in the Midwest. And when we came here in January, yeah, I was psyched. Yeah, on all the dishes we had, they were damn good. But one of them was the Nashville that was the hot shrooms. Hot shrooms. Yeah. Was this something that you kind of it's something brought I've, from your past? Yeah, well, actually, I've never I've never had the actual dish, um, but it was something that I saw again through this show called Mind of a Chef, which was an Anthony Bourdain show. And just like saw the story behind it, and basically like when you eat it, it's an experience, right? I had toned mine down a lot compared to what I perceived was Nashville hot shrooms. Like it's supposed to make you sweat. Like it's super hot. I, I think most of it's like a, a mix of smoked pa- or pap- paprika and cayenne. Like that's the main two things. So I, I brought it down to a level that it's kind of like at the top of most people's spice, uh, you know, their ability to handle that much spice. So. We make, we make a spice mix that's got brown our, our own brown sugar that we make here, um, the fermented Fresno powder, the black lime goes in there. I love Old Bay, so we've got Old Bay in there. Um, so that, you basically make a chili oil uh, and then toss the shrooms in that, and then our two-month fermented hot sauce goes on top of that too. So it's different levels of, of spice that you get on there. And it's, I like to play with things to where you can taste every individual ingredient as opposed to just being like, punch you in the mouth hot. You know, it's like, I wanted it to still be enjoyable when you ate it. <laughs> yeah. I definitely, I didn't get the, 
overwhelming yeah you know i, I hate that personally mm -hmm. where, where you just end up with like where you are sweating and your mouth is on yeah. fire you can't taste the thing but yeah i love that dish man i think while we're here we're gonna have to we're yeah. gonna have to get back here and and, and get I, that in front of us it's a damn good one i still eat it pretty regularly i i love it it's such a good dish yeah it's, it's it was i think it went on the menu like two three months after we opened and it's been on since then I, I, if I took it off the menu now, there'd be riots. Like I, <laughs> and when I go to these, when I go to these events, like I have to do them, even if I don't want to, I was like, I got to do the shrooms. Like yeah. I have to, and it's, it, they sell out every single time. Yeah, dude. If, if we were living in, you know, Portland, Oregon, and I heard that you took those off the menu, I'd be, <laughs> I, I'd be messaging. I'd be pissed because why, why, I, why, why, why'd you do that? <laughs> I, I have some leeway with, with our menu where I can, Kind of move things in and out as they're not selling but the mac and cheese and the the hot shrooms like they're never going anywhere the salisbury tempeh dish same like that's been on since day one um and now with our our pizzas too like we've got a pretty good cross-section of things that are like people come here specifically for those those pizzas so i i try to change things as i can but there's like a core group of them that just aren't going anywhere yeah we're humans we get like locked into yeah. like the good stuff and never no, want to let it go and, and and that's but that's about building a reputation for your restaurant too you're like i i don't like going to a place and like really being like oh i wanted that thing and then they don't have it anymore if if it's something that's not a seasonal change like you know we're pretty good about letting people know like it changed because that product just isn't available anymore yeah. or it's just not as good as it was before so it's just about knowledge and education at some point but yeah there are certain things like they just can't move and i i know that now and they're not going anywhere have you tried to take things off the menu in the past and and had backlash i mean all the time all I don't, the time i don't i don't hear about it as much because I, I think our servers are pretty good about kind <laughs> of dampening some of it but but we're also pretty pretty good about explaining why you know i, I try not to be I, i'm definitely not arbitrary about what i take away I, I look at sales numbers but then i also look at you know produce availability and all that kind of stuff so when i make a change it's it's for all the right reasons um, and some people do get upset, but they, you know we're usually able to turn somebody on to something new, and then that becomes their favorite until we take it away. <laughs> Let them down. It's pretty much. Yeah, slowly. So a couple of questions to wrap up. First one is, do you have any, are there any vegan chefs that you've been able to learn from and you know, yeah, learning to cook with different ingredients and, and finding textures and flavors? Yeah, I would say, I mean, Scott was a big one for me. Uh, working with him for a long time was definitely eye-opening but then uh, there's a good <clears throat> group of friends that I have in LA um, one is this guy named Hiram um, he's a personal chef for somebody yeah, but we've cooked together a couple times been really cool we, we did like so, a pop-up dinner in his backyard just for some friends one day um, the Sarno brothers love those guys um, got had the opportunity to talk to them a few times and they're doing amazing things in with what they're doing with Tesco and the whole w Wicked Healthy thing is amazing. Um, my good friend Mary uh, is Nam Yourself. Just watching her career, like, her whole thing is like to teach people how to cook vegan food at home. Um, she's been amazing just to be around, you know, learning from her. It's not just food, but I learn how to navigate the whole social media world just by working with her and just kind of seeing how she does. And honestly, with her, I, I wouldn't know half the people that I know now because she's just 
was so gracious with her knowledge and her time that she's introduced me to, to the Sarno brothers and to Hiram and to Jason Stefanko, who was the uh, executive chef for Gardein for a long time. Like I got, I've worked when I was out of work, I did product demos, demos for Gardein for like a year. And, uh, he's been a really cool guy. And he, I sat down with him one day because he used to run $2 million hotel restaurants. And uh, I just sat down with him one day. I'm like, how do I do my job? <laughs> and we just had dinner one day and we just talked through it and it was been, it was really helpful, you know? So th those, those people have been really beneficial for kind of what I'm doing right now. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the Sano brothers are all... I love what they're doing. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. I actually just saw that Chad bought a Westie. <laughs> yeah, no, I just saw that yesterday too. So, that's pretty cool. you know, being in the van and, yeah. and have, like, having oh. done that for a while, I was like, that's yeah. that's really cool that he's he's doing... We met him in, uh, yeah. I think it was Baltimore, for one of the, the food shows yeah. up there. And yeah, I love what they're doing with uh, the Tesco yeah. in the UK and then also Good Catch over here in the yeah. US, which we haven't tried yet. We haven't I, tried I Good Catch. Either need to get onto that yeah but for me too is like i look like if you look at our cookbook section over there like i don't have very many vegan cookbooks so for me it's it's sean brock ed lee uh renee redzepi like all those guys chris bianco for pizza uh chad robertson for bread and pizza for tartine like those are the people that i look up to jelena is a really big one for me which is a restaurant in venice uh travis lett is the chef there <clears throat> he he basically created a California cuisine that is just kind of happening. It's just use what you have that's in season and just put it on pizza, make vegetable dishes, you know, do all that kind of stuff. So those are the people that I look to the most. Um, I get to learn from all these other vegan guys, but at the same time, they're looking to the same people that I look to because uh, I feel like for a while, veganism, vegan chefs were very stagnant and just like, you know, okay, I'll use this garden and I'll turn it into a meat thing is now we're pushing it to a different level, which is better for everybody, I think. Yeah, I love where it's going. Yeah. I like the, the whole food yeah. kind of scene. Yeah. It's really cool to see what can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love it. Last question for me is, what's next? What What is you know on the horizon for you and, and the <clears> restaurant? <throat> well, for right now, I've got the second restaurant opening in LA. So that's gonna be in Sherman Oaks, hopefully beginning of next year. Other than that, I'm not sure. Yeah, I want to see how I can do with two restaurants, but I always have ideas about doing more. Um, but right now it's just trying to make this a sustainable business in two cities, and then we'll see. Like I, People have asked me for years to write a cookbook. That's something I really want to do. I'm slowly working on it. I think I have a direction and now that I want to go in with it, but just making that happen, and then we just want to be a part of events and all that kind of stuff. So... As part of the LA restaurant is we have a bigger kitchen to where I can do Coachella, I can do uh, all these music events and all that kind of stuff where I, I can't really do that out of here, we're too small. So I just want to be available and be in those places. So I don't know, I just kind of, I've always been like the kind of take things as it comes kind of person, but also trying to plan for the future at the same time. <laughs> it's a, I, if I didn't take things as they come, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I, I don't know what I would be doing. It's a hard balance. Yeah, the, it really the is. Take it as it comes and the planning. It's, I'm, it's I'm more stressful. the take it as it comes yeah. and, and as the, the strict planning. So we're always trying to find that balance as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a stressful. It's stressful. My, my wife is very, like, I wouldn't say rigid, but, you know, plans and I'm the complete opposite. And I know I drive her crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know I drive on a crazy yeah. as well. <laughs> Mate, it has been really cool to to come to your place here yeah. and uh learn more about you and the and the restaurant. Yeah. Love what you're doing. Thanks. 
thank I'm you glad for the it worked time. Out. Yeah, I'm so psyched <laughs> it worked out. And yeah, this hope- is actually the only day I'm here this week because I'm going to be back in LA for doing stuff. So it just it just serendipitously worked out, I guess. <laughs> Love the timing. Love the timing. Thank you for making the time, and I personally can't wait to get back here cool. for a meal, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Hey, Veggie Mates, thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed hearing more about Roy's life and his incredible restaurant, Donna Jean. We got super inspired by his team and their creativity. Hearing about making their own cheeses and working on a parmesan they hope to have on each table uh, was pretty cool. And also learning uh, about their efforts to choose ingredients that are grown locally and to use all of those ingredients, leaving no food waste behind, is amazing and something we can all incorporate into our own homes. We'd personally love to try making something like a bolognese with the cauliflower leaves, the broccoli stems and other cruciferous veggies. If you'd like to find Roy online, he is on Instagram at Roy Elam, that's E-L-A-M, and the restaurant is at Donna Jean Official. Go and check them out, say hello, and let them know what you thought of today's show. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you all. Even better, if you're in San Diego or the surrounding areas, make a reservation and grab a meal. It's an epic spot, and I highly recommend the Nashville Hot Shrooms and any pizza. They're all delicious. Next week, we have another inspiring story lined up for you with recipe developer and blogger Alexa Soto. If you'd like to find her, she's on Instagram at Alexa Fueled Naturally. Until then, guys, keep it plant-based. And I look forward to chatting with you all next week.